0: Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In this episode, we're talking about economic inclusion. Economic inclusion programs typically target the poorest people and seek to address the many barriers to escaping poverty by providing multiple, complementary interventions. These generally include providing cash transfers and assets, but also training, mentoring, access to finance and so on. These programs are gaining in popularity. According to a major report published earlier this year, there were economic inclusion programs running in 75 countries, many still quite new, reaching 92 million people. And with the number of poor living in extreme poverty on the rise for the first time in a decade due to COVID-19, and the increasing focus on re-engaging people in the economy post-pandemic, the time may be ripe for a big push on taking more of these programs to scale. With me today to talk about economic inclusion are Lauren Whitehead and Colin Andrews. Lauren Whitehead is the Director of Technical Assistance for the BRAC Ultra-Poor Graduation Initiative, a global program partnering with governments in Africa and Asia on integrating economic inclusion into existing social protection programs. And Colin Andrews is a Program Manager in the World Bank's Social Protection and Jobs Global Practice. He leads the Partnership for Economic Inclusion, a multi-partner initiative to support the scale-up of national economic inclusion programs, and is the lead author of the State of Economic Inclusion Report, The Potential to Scale, which was launched earlier this year. Lauren and Colin, welcome to the Social Protection Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having us, Joanne. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here.
0: So, Lauren... BRAC's Ultra Poor Graduation Initiative is one of the longest running and perhaps best known examples of an economic inclusion program. Can you break it down for us? What are the critical elements of the graduation approach and how does all of that contribute to poverty reduction and resilience?
1: So, BRAC actually created the graduation approach in 2002. And at that time, graduation was a response to our recognition that our microfinance programs were essentially failing the poorest of the poor. They were providing financial inclusion and support, but weren't necessarily able to provide the type of holistic solution that households really needed. And so, when we went about creating graduation, we really looked at what were the multidimensional needs of households that were inhibiting them from being able to even access microfinance to be able to properly utilize microfinance, and ultimately to be able to advance on what we call upward trajectory from poverty. And so when we looked at that, we were able to distill it down into four elements that we've denoted that regardless of geography, the community or country context are the foundational pillars of graduation. And so for us, that refers to social protection, which is um, meeting basic needs, making sure that a household has access to food and that their food security needs are met, access to health services, um, water, sanitation, hygiene, and so forth, access to education even for children, access to shelter in some environments, because we find that these social protection needs are the foundation. And if a household doesn't have these met, they can't focus on anything else, and they won't be able to really invest in what's considered the second pillar of graduation, livelihoods promotion, um, which is a focus on income generation and essentially finding a way for households to earn an income and earn a livelihood. Part of this focus in the past has always been on providing access to small scale enterprises for households, micro enterprises and things of that nature. But increasingly, graduation programs, including some of the programs that BRAC has directly led, focus on providing access to wage employment, some form of formal employment to help pull people out of the informal economy. So then when you combine those two, social protection with the livelihoods promotion piece, we found that in order for a household to really withstand shocks as they occur, also need access to financial services and savings because those are basically their safety net um, when something happens to that household. So we provide access to financial services and financial inclusion as the third pillar, including things like financial literacy training, numeracy training, and so forth. And then all of that is wrapped together and combined with this element of social empowerment. Um, and it's actually one of my favorite pillars because of the fact that it's focusing on confidence, it's focusing on building self-esteem, it's focusing on providing linkages into the community so that households are able to actually vie for their rights and their needs when they need them. Um, We provide access to local government resources and so forth, and we also provide coaching, which is a key piece of mentorship, and I'm happy to talk about that later.
0: Thanks, Lauren. Colin, BRAC's graduation approach is perhaps one of the first and best-known examples of economic inclusion programs, but this is very much an expanding field. How are economic resilience programs being adopted by governments globally in different contexts, and why do you think these kinds of approaches seem to be gaining popularity?
2: You know, this was a central theme of the State of Economic Inclusion Report we just published a couple of months ago which really put the spotlight onto the surge, the scale and the evidence so all of the scale up of these economic inclusion programs and what they imply. And it's an exciting moment. I think stepping back a little bit, I think Lauren uh, hinted at the central challenge here, uh, transforming the economic lives of the extreme. Poor. It's a monumental challenge. Uh, and this challenge is greatly magnified in the context of COVID-19. When we think about it for the world's poorest populations labor markets are going to remain informal pathways for the poorest to formal employment are really limited uh, and while transformative economic growth uh, will always be the ultimate driver in many cases of poverty reduction it, it's not automatically inclusive uh, and it doesn't always penetrate the poorest of households so the idea then comes with a, a big push of a coordinated set of interventions And I think when you look across the landscape, when we looked at our report, we identified along the lines of programmatic activity linked to national programs in around 75 countries. We know now since COVID-19, that's increased to over 90 countries. And there's a great deal of customization on these programs really to meet local needs, uh, local challenges, and to adapt these programs. So I think this gives you an idea of where this hopefully fits uh, in an overall landscape of development. So I think why governments are trying to get to these issues uh, quite urgently.
0: Lauren, you just outlined the four essential pillars of the graduation approach that economic inclusion programs largely tend to follow. What is it about that package of integrated interventions that seems to account for the impact of these programs?
1: Sure. Um, So BRAC has led or participated in a number of rigorous evaluations over the past two decades, both from our own direct implementation and then again with a lot of the government partners that we are working with. Um, And based on that, we've seen a number of things, both when you provide a holistic set across the the four foundational pillars, as well as programs that look to sort of tweak those different components that look to um, even eliminate some elements of the pillars, which is why we continually fall back on those four foundational pillars as being so critical. Um, So we have seen instances where research has been conducted on programs that remove assets altogether and see that income generation doesn't need to be the key focus that's provided by the program, but rather you have households accruing their own savings over time to then invest in their own enterprise or to invest in some kind of livelihood thereafter on their own reconnaissance. We've seen some programs that have removed or drastically reduced even that mentoring and coaching element. So you end up having just a series of interventions that are intertwined and you maybe only have someone who you check in with digitally once a quarter, once every six months, it depends. You can do all sorts of variations and all sorts of adaptations. But at the end of the day, there is something very central about those four foundations pillars that everyone needs met, because when you wrap those together, that's where you see the greatest impact. And I think more importantly, the impact that's going to be able to withstand shocks, because something that sets graduation apart and something that's been shown multiple times in the evidence, um, you know, for example, in Bangladesh, looking at households, even from a randomized control trial, 10 years out of having participated in the program, and we see a similar upward trajectory. We see increases in income. We see significant increases in savings, even more than some of increases in um, consumption patterns by households. And that continues. So I would say that's something that really does set graduation apart. And that's why we focus on having this integrated approach, which is a bit different than some programs that might focus on a singular need that a population has. Because there are some populations, especially those on the cusp of being considered non-poor, that might only need access to financial services or might only need access to some capital injection to start a livelihood. But we're really focusing on populations that really have that holistic, set of needs that graduation provides because of the multidimensionality of poverty.
0: In the recent State of Economic Inclusion report that Colin spoke about earlier, 90% of the programs surveyed across the globe prioritised women for participation. But what do we know about whether and how these programs actually contribute to women's empowerment? Colin, I might start with you and then I'll pass to Lauren to give her perspective.
2: Thanks. Uh, You know, this was one of the really interesting findings of the report, and I feel something that was a really strong call to action in terms of women's economic empowerment uh, in a range of contexts from Afghanistan to Zambia. Uh, What was really interesting is we surveyed a whole range of countries, and we looked at programmatic experiences from over 220 active programs the idea here that the question on women's economic empowerment for many programs was a very strong idea that unless these issues of power and social injustice uh, were confronted directly. We wouldn't really be able to turn the needle and really to see the outcomes on women's economic empowerment. Um, one of the programs that shows a huge amount of promise that we have been supporting is the Dual program in Zambia. This is a large scale economic inclusion program that's now being scaled up to target 75,000 women uh, with a focus also on adolescent girls as well who are making that transition from a secondary school into their adult life. So here we see that the question on training and coaching components becomes really important uh, in terms of building life skills, self-confidence and the agency of women. And we see that across several programs, psychosocial support becomes critically important, but what they did in Zambia also critically important was engaging men. And this is critical in terms of shifting the needles. There's a lot of interesting work done there in terms of couples, coaching and messaging to families as well as to elders within community networks. And then finally, to say that as we think about women's economic empowerment, serious changes need to take place in terms of the program design and the program delivery. Uh, for example, looking at how staffing and payment systems are made. So programs including in Rwanda, have some really interesting innovations at the community level in terms of using local uh, women uh, in terms of providing that uh, interface, And we see a lot of effort within the Zambia program on childcare and flexibility to reduce some burdens on women who have typically uh, many other sets of responsibilities. I think there's also been a lot of really innovative work on safeguards to make sure that these programs don't have any unintended effects. So really looking at the issues of gender based violence and what this means in an operational context. I think that the evidence that we're seeing is quite positive uh, to see that you can devise these programs sensibly and coherently to have that empowerment effect that you want.
0: Lauren, did you have anything you wanted to add?
1: Uh, Women's social empowerment and women's economic empowerment is an area that's um, really critical for BRAC and is part of our ethos as an organization. So even when we initially started to develop graduation programs, we had a strong focus on engaging women, recognizing that among the communities we were serving, among the extreme poor, the poorest of the poor, women tended to be the poorest in that subset, the most marginalized in that subset, and the ones upon whom um, the typical burdens of maintaining the household and providing things such as basic needs for their children was required. Many times graduation programs for governments are built into or integrated on top of existing social protection programs like cash transfer programs that either directly or inadvertently end up targeting women. And I would say that is another reason why some of the additional components, again, that are assessed based on the needs of women that are participating in the program are identified. So you have a situation like with the government of the Philippines where you have women who are primarily, Primarily, those who have to meet the conditionalities of the government's conditional cash transfer program, Pantawid Pamilyang Pilipino, which requires that education and health outcomes are maintained for children in that household. And the women tend to be the ones who are responsible for that. And now you have situations where they are parent leaders and are able to advocate for the needs, not just of children, but of their households in general. And they have access to community leaders like Barangay captains who are local community leaders that can actually affect change on behalf of them. So you do see that there's a strong focus on women's empowerment, not just because that I would say is part of some of the original DNA of graduation that many programs tend to espouse, but also because of the nature of the types of social protection programs that graduations often integrated in. Um, and just one last thing I would say on this is that it's been very interesting in Bangladesh. We've had the privilege of being able to link the graduation programs with our gender justice program and we've seen over the years a significant impact on women participating in local committees, participating in local leadership groups, and fighting for social change, including things like reducing early marriage, reducing female genital mutilation, and other kinds of negative gender norms, et cetera. I think that social empowerment element that comes forward with the economic inclusion focus that Colin was just speaking about in women's economic empowerment is equally very important for elevating women in their communities.
0: Lauren, you've described how economic inclusion programs can build resilience and help people survive shocks, but that must really have been put to the test over the last year. What do we know about how graduates and participants have fared through the disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: I think something that is uh, most disturbing for us is watching the progress of the sustainable development goals and what the development community has been able to achieve over the last several decades essentially eroded in, in a snap in the course of a year, progress that's been rolled back so significantly, and especially for the poorest of the poor and the extreme poor populations like those that we tend to work with. Something that we found though through this is that In the environments where graduation existed prior to the COVID pandemic, you're seeing that people are able to actually bounce back from many of the the negative effects of the lockdowns much faster because they have access to some of those resources that I was mentioning before, right? They're able to very easily access local government even and say, this population is not being served. We're not receiving the top-ups of cash transfer benefits that are being rolled out and expanded during COVID, or we actually have other needs that are happening in these communities because our livelihoods are even more affected than others. But you've also seen where graduation programs are being built or are rolling out during COVID and are able to already start to adapt as a result. So we've had households be assisted with activating national health insurance, which in some programs is an integral component, and in some other programs has not been much of a focus, but COVID has essentially put that in the spotlight. So we have many programs that are linking with ministries of health. For example, BRAC Uganda is actually coordinating very closely with the Ministry of Health to provide updated information information on the outbreak, but also to make sure that the appropriate households that are supposed to be enrolled and receiving benefits and support from the Ministry of Health actually have access to those. Um, In other contexts, we've seen then you also have local government that's trying to provide access to food aid, for example, for households that are really in need, being able to reach households that are the most vulnerable and maybe didn't even receive their top-ups. And you see how households who've gone through graduation know who to go to or already have those connections and resources because they're coaches have linked them in the past and then programs that are rolling out are making that a central focus. One last example I would say is just in Egypt. We've been able to see that not only these linkages to local governments, but linkages to community groups are really essential. And in that particular case, these community groups have been able to provide households with a wide range of needs that they weren't previously being able to access until they were actually linked into these. So I think during COVID, yes, it's been very difficult to adapt for any program And there's been tremendous setbacks, but I think the linkages piece of graduation has really shown through during this time, Um, in addition to obviously using coaches to maintain information, um, sharing about health, sanitation, hygiene and so forth.
0: Colin, can you tell us more from your perspective about some of the other challenges for economic inclusion programs that you've seen during this COVID period?
2: Yeah, and I think just building on what Lauren said, I think what we're seeing here is a bit of a focus now on the medium term recovery and how we can use an economic inclusion programmes as part of an integrated policy response, right? Not just as standalone interventions. What's been really important throughout the COVID pandemic is the idea of building on existing interventions of existing policy space for many of the governments that we are dealing with. And we're seeing some interesting things in that regard. So I think in terms of some of the rural programming, uh, being able to build on those existing foundations, being able to build on community platforms and mechanisms has become uh, very uh, important. And very important also to realize synergies between households, local markets, and local economies. So we're going to see a lot more discussion on that in a way that nudges this discussion and graduation beyond just a household approach, an approach that really links in with local economy effects. But we're also seeing very strong discussion now, which we didn't have as much before, on the urban space. And on top of that, It's become an interesting moment in time to see design innovations in terms of shifting uh, some of the focus around linkages, like Lauren said, to service delivery, particularly in health related areas, uh, but also linkages in terms of uh, digitalization. So the reality is that many programs have really suffered in their implementation over the last year and six months. So trying to identify opportunities where you can actually bring in some technology to help reach, train, communicate uh, with beneficiary groups has become important in, in a variety of contexts.
0: Lauren, graduation style programs are most frequently associated, I think, with the rural poor. Could you talk a little bit about how we're seeing them adapted to urban contexts?
1: Certainly. When we talk about urban adaptation, there's sort of an assumption, I think, that it means tweaking, essentially, or adapting what was done in a rural context for an urban environment. We have seen some programs that have looked to implement some of the exact same components that might be happening in um, a rural context and simply modify those slightly for an urban context. And those programs have struggled quite a bit. And I think a key reason why they've struggled is not really doing the vulnerability barrier assessments to understand what the needs of that urban population are. And I think during COVID, that's especially important because the needs of urban populations has evolved so rapidly, right? When you're thinking about large degrees of informal workers who are operating in the informal economy and then have seen those jobs evaporate overnight, um, you're seeing in large trends of reverse migration to rural areas for populations that previously were primarily existing in urban environments. and. As a result, what that's caused is strain in a number of different ways, right? So in for urban populations that previously were outside of the remit of many social protection programs, which tend to focus on rural poor populations, you're seeing that these populations didn't have access to some basic social services, right? And that might have been because they were able to provide for those needs differently because they had higher incomes, they had higher access and so forth. But things as, as basic as water, sanitation, and hygiene, you're finding that urban populations don't have access to. You're finding that they're not on registries for social cash transfers. We're also finding that their skills base is very different. Some of them might have had skills that are very well suited to an urban informal economy environment and not so much to a rural environment. Or they might be highly skilled, but then there's no particular opportunities available for them in urban or rural environments, which means you have to really recalibrate how you do livelihoods promotion for this population. In Uganda, there's a disability-inclusive graduation pilot that BRAC has been operating that focuses on youth, where even prior to COVID, there was a strong focus on skills-based vocational training and apprenticeships, so that you had youth that were able to do things like electrical work, um, mobile phone repair, motorcycle repair, many different things like that, hospitality, for example, and then find some kind of pathway into that. That tends to be very common in urban environments because the markets are just more dynamic. Um, We're also finding issues of very high rates of debt among urban populations, especially those who might have had gainful employment and could pay back many of their loans, whether those are are formal microloans, for example, or whether those might be from predatory lending, Entities like Loan Sharks. And now, suddenly, with COVID, they're not able to meet that requirement of being able to pay back their loans. And so, some of these things that you see come forward in vulnerability assessments of urban populations that aren't as typical for some of the rural populations, depending on the context that we're working in. So, really, I would say the focus in urban areas should be thinking not just about urban adaptation how do you adapt some of these components and elements, but how do you really assess what the need is for that population now during COVID and then in even after COVID, when COVID has, has hopefully gone in the rearview mirror in a few years.
0: Colin, we've touched on the severe erosion of poverty gains during the COVID 19 pandemic, and you've started to talk a little bit about the potential for economic inclusion programs to scale up, especially as part of post COVID recovery. What's the vision for this sector, and where do you think it's headed in the next few years?
2: So I think the um, central focus, certainly for our partnership, is to really look at this question in terms of how governments can lead the scale of economic inclusion programs, building on national programs and building on national policies and having this clear coherence and a clear linkage. I think what we're seeing now is that economic inclusion, productive inclusion, graduation investments, these are becoming a critical instrument in many governments' large-scale anti already programming space. Uh, And it may not have been there as much 10 years ago, even when safety net coverage was quite nascent, the conversations we're having now are quite different. And I think it's game changing because the adoption from government uh, helps us to expand and reach more population groups. One of the interesting findings of the SCI report was the idea that across our whole global inventory of programs, half of the programs were government-led but those programs were covering 95% of the beneficiaries globally but you know that's all the positive side i think there's several challenges and there's several debates in this area that we're working through and it's a real learning agenda so I think one of the core challenges that we're looking at is that the current coverage of economic inclusion programs is actually quite modest. Despite the surge that we see across global programmings, when you aggregate these programs at country level, they reach fewer than 5% of the extreme poor in most cases. And Before we just think about doubling that coverage number from 10% to 20% or to 30%, et cetera. We really have to take a very serious look at what is a sustainable approach to trying to move to scale. There's a large question here on the feasibility of a big push bundle coordinated set of interventions. When we did the SEI report, we were quite surprised to see that on average governments were implementing these programs with six or seven components. We thought the number could be much lower. and I think the final on these complexities will be the costs. Within the PEI, we've been doing some work over the last year to try to look at disaggregating program costs. What we're seeing is that typically these programs are dominated by a single unit of intervention, a single dominating cost, uh, which comes in the, typically in the range of 50 to 60% of a program structure. Now, if you think about scaling up, And in this case, if you think about building on social safety nets and building on existing cash transfer mechanisms, as you go to scale, building on pre-existing interventions helps you to cost optimize. Um, So let me close out, I, I think in terms of where to next, I think this really is a call to action. The question of scale is really key in all of this. There's a huge amount of learning and evidence to build upon, but a lot more to go in terms of as we go towards the next generation of these programs.
0: And to finish up today, Lauren, BRAC, of course, was established in Bangladesh, but now works in so many different countries with governments and other partners. What are your reflections on taking economic inclusion programs to scale, looking at BRAC's
1: experience? I really love something that I feel like we preach very often with many of our government partners, particularly around interministerial collaboration—not just interministerial coordination, which essentially sometimes can amount to ministries not trying to step on one another's toes and making sure that they have divided populations that they serve, for example—but true interministerial collaboration, which is something we've been speaking about with our government partners for years at BRAC, but is quite difficult. It's hard to align financial incentives, resource incentives across ministries. It's hard to. Line, policy incentives, even sometimes when there's a shared mission or mandate or a policy directive for a certain population or even around poverty reduction. So prior to COVID, we had been focusing very heavily on why graduation as a multidimensional holistic approach really requires that there is strong interministerial collaboration. And I think many governments said that it's very difficult to do. Maybe we can pilot it in this area or that, but we won't be able to change whole systems for how we operate with other ministries or other departments. And what we've seen during COVID is there's been this period of extreme dynamism around how ministries recognize that it was not an option not to collaborate. They had to collaborate. You had to have the Ministry of Social Welfare, Social Protection, Social Development able to provide access to National Registry list of households who were enrolled in some cash transfer programs, who were enrolled in other poverty reduction schemes to be able to provide that to the Ministry of Health to say that these households need access to health information, they need access to COVID testing, soon we're saying even now they need access to vaccines, right? That level of true collaboration between ministries was forced by COVID in a way. And I think part of why that's important is because that's going to be where we're going to see scale. That's where we're really going to see some of the numbers hit that we hope to see across populations. I think it's really telling what Colin mentioned that out of all of the programs that are operating graduation, some 95% of beneficiaries are covered by these government programs, right? Because they're already operating at scale. So in some ways we're leveraging the economies of scale of their existing scale, when you can build into those programs and effectively collaborate across ministries. And then I think further to that, It's also going to be something that will have a tremendous impact on the cost of these programs. So, we very often hear pushback around graduation being expensive. And something I think that we've tried to emphasize is when you can leverage existing programs, that is part of where you bring down these costs to something that is reasonable and can be aligned with existing fiscal pressures that governments are under. And we're seeing that when governments are piloting. And what we're really pushing for is governments to be able to continue scaling that approach because that's going to be the way forward for graduation in the future and in an unexpected way COVID might have paved that path and recognizing that that is part of a way that we invest in critical crucial public services that contribute to resilience for everyone and on this path towards more equitable societies, stronger economies not just for people in poverty but for entire populations.
0: Colin Andrews and Lauren Whitehead thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thanks so much from my side also. Thanks so much for having us today and we'll
1: talk soon. Thank you so much for having us, Joanne. This was wonderful.
0: For more on graduation and economic inclusion, we've put up some links in the show notes to the State of Economic Inclusion Report and to BRAC's website. We'll also link to the recordings for a blockbuster two-day global learning event on economic inclusion for the poorest that ran this week, featuring 70 speakers, including our two guests from today. Now, before we go, we'll end with our quick wins segment. Each month, we'll ask a guest to give a quick roundup of news, achievements, research or knowledge that has sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Joining me today is Fazle Elahi Mahud. Fazle is a social protection specialist and works with the Social Protection Hub of the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Fazle's work has a focus on linking social protection with sustainable employment, which makes him an ideal quick wins guest for this episode. Welcome Fazle.
3: Thanks Joe for inviting me to this podcast. The topic is really close to my heart.
0: So, what have you brought for us today?
3: A couple of events and publications have really struck me recently. The first one is a webinar hosted by the Asian Development Bank with socialprotection.org, titled Social Protection for Economic Inclusion, Adapting the Graduation Approach in Asia and the Pacific. Nobel laureate economist Avijit Banerjee gave keynote speech in this webinar. He talked about evidence of effectiveness of economic inclusion approach. But what struck me most was his observation on poverty and psychological effect of economic inclusion approach as one of the drivers of success. Many of the extreme poor people were born poor and didn't have a chance to come out of poverty trap. Being in poverty for a long time is profoundly depressing and dehumanizing. When an economic inclusion program offers them a chance that they never got before and treat them as normal human being, it makes a profoundly transformative impact.
0: Yes, this was a really impressive keynote and a great webinar overall. Uh, It also actually featured Lauren Whitehead, who we've just heard from in the previous segment and in some ways inspired this episode. So people interested in this topic should definitely check it out. What else do you have for us?
3: Uh, speaking of Banerjee, he also led a study that has just come out about Indonesia's food voucher program. It's called "Food versus Food Stamp: Evidence from an At-Scale Experiment in Indonesia." It found that the poverty rate among recipients of food voucher scheme fell by twenty percent, while transfer of food of same value didn't make any change in poverty rate. The difference seems to be that. People who received vouchers got to keep more of the benefit, while people who received rice were more likely to have to share with other people who hadn't qualified for the program. The voucher scheme also allowed flexibility in choices of food and led to higher consumption of protein, especially eggs.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? The voucher scheme largely replaced the massive distribution of subsidised rice in Indonesia a few years ago. So these are really interesting findings for other countries still implementing large-scale, in-kind food distribution programmes. Next up.
3: For people who like podcasts, there is a great series from WeGo called the Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. A recent episode presented important insights on ageing and critical importance of social pension for informal workers. For example, when women in domestic work get old, they become less productive and so lose their jobs. But many of them don't have homes to go back to after living away for years. Usually they don't have access to social pension, so they find it very challenging to maintain livelihoods. The speaker of the podcast, Aura Sevilla, also talked about policy trends impact of COVID-19 on the elderly informal workers, and some of the good practice examples of policy responses.
0: Yes, I'm a fan of the Informal Economy podcast as well. I thought the episode about the universal basic income in South Africa was also really worth a listen. And can we end with a quick plug?
3: Yes, I'd like to let the audience know about a community of practice called Social Protection for Employment Community, in short, SPEC. Which I moderate in collaboration with German GIZ. This is a platform for knowledge exchange on linking social protection to employment, and it hosts a rich collection of publications and webinars on this topic. Recently, we have published infographics on employment generation programs in nine countries that are linked to social protection programs.
0: Thanks so much, Fazle. We'll put links to all of those resources in our
3: show notes. Thanks, Joe, again, and thanks to the audience.
0: And thank you for joining us for this episode of the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection please do subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and we are so delighted when you leave a review. Back next month. See you then.